This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Trailblazer. We here at the Word of the Week like to think of ourselves as guides. Each week we pick out a starting point, some word or concept or idea, and then we lead you on a meandering journey across the wilderness of gaming, history, science, literature, mythology, and culture. We're not trying to lead you any place in particular. Often we just end up back where we started. It's the journey that makes it worth it. The exercise of a mental hike and the opportunity to see rare intellectual vistas, unspoiled and glimpsed by only we happy few intellectual wayfarers. In a sense, we're blazing a trail and inviting you to follow us. And because you can download this podcast whenever you want, you can follow us at your leisure. Without wishing to stroke our egos any more than we already have with the claim that we're intellectual trailblazers taking you on a grand adventure. Without wishing to stroke our egos any more. We can't help but feel we're engaging in a grand, ancient tradition. One engaged in by countless cultures and peoples. One associated with brave adventurers pulled ahead by distant horizons. And with great empires and with stalwart survivalists. And even with impoverished expatriates just trying to find a place to sleep and a scrap of food. We are torchbearers. We are pathfinders. We are trailblazers. Nowadays, we associate the phrase trailblazer with someone who does something new and great and innovative a pioneer, but the phrase actually originates in the 18th century in America with a pair of very famous explorers, a very famous trail, 300,000 pioneers, and an educational video game that people are a lot more nostalgic about than it probably deserves. The story begins with whiskey. Once upon a time, 13 English colonies in North America decided to split from England and start their own country. Actually, they very nearly started four different countries, but that's another story. The colonists eventually engaged in an armed rebellion that ballooned into a full-blown war, the American Revolutionary War. After some very difficult and complicated compromises, the colonies formed a single country, the United States of America. That was in 1787. And then, in 1791, the young nation faced a problem. The country was deeply in debt. Soldiers and mercenaries who had served in the revolution had yet to be paid, as did foreign powers like France, who had also provided aid. But the Secretary of the Treasury, the first one America had, Alexander Hamilton, had an idea. Taxes. He decided to impose an excise tax on many goods produced across the various states. Now, an excise tax is a tax on a specific good paid either by the makers of that good or the buyers of that good. And among the various goods that Hamilton proposed excise taxes on was alcohol, distilled spirits. And when this tax passed, a lot of people became very angry specifically highland farmers in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. See, these western farmers, because that was as far west as America went back then, 
These western farmers relied on corn, rye, and other grains to earn a profit. But because the wilderness between the coastal lowlands and the Appalachian highlands were lawless and dangerous, those farmers couldn't ship their corn and grain for sale. Instead, they would distill their crops into whiskey, ship that, sell it, and earn a living. The Appalachian farmers were some of the poorest people in the new nation. They couldn't afford the excise taxes, nor could they risk raising their prices and losing sales to absorb the tax. Further, many of them had opposed the formation of the federal government and had come to America to escape governmental authority. In Pennsylvania and northern Virginia, the farmers organized protests, and those protests quickly became violent, and the rebellion threatened to fracture the delicate young nation. Ultimately, after the rebels burned down the home of a tax collector in Pittsburgh, President Washington was forced to organize a militia of some 13,000 men, which he personally led. They were able to disperse the rebels. They also arrested 150 insurgents, but no one would testify against the insurgents, and so many of them were released. In the end, only two men were brought to trial. John Mitchell and Philip Weigel were found guilty of treason. But President Washington pardoned them both, and the rebellion was quashed. What does this have to do with pioneers and explorers and trailblazing and video games? Well, among the militiamen who served under Washington, one man distinguished himself above the others. An American adventurer named Meriwether Lewis. He continued his military service, joining the army and quickly gaining the rank of captain. And in 1801, his reputation had grown to such a degree that the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, asked Lewis to serve as his private secretary. Two years later, in 1803, the Kingdom of France was having some trouble of its own. Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was dealing with revolts and rebellions in its holdings in Haiti. At the same time, tensions were growing again between France and England. Now, France owned a huge chunk of land in North America that was mostly unsettled. Needing ready cash and already tired of the difficulties of maintaining colonies in the Americas, France agreed to sell to the United States a territory of some 800,000 square miles between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, known as the Louisiana Territory. Although, in today's dollars, the purchase was made for a paltry quarter of a billion U.S. dollars, or roughly 50 cents an acre, France also agreed to cancel a massive amount of America's Revolutionary War debt. And so, in 1803, President Jefferson found himself sitting on 800,000 square miles of unexplored trackless land and sitting at the next desk was a distinguished adventurer and military captain who was really more at home in the field. The solution was obvious. After Meriwether Lewis paid a visit to his friend and fellow soldier, William Clark, the Lewis and Clark expedition was underway. Over the next two years, Lewis and Clark led an expedition of 30 men across the Mississippi River, through the unexplored Louisiana Territory, and to the northwest over the Rocky Mountains, and eventually reached Oregon. Their journey was difficult, but they were helped along the way 
by making peace with various native tribes of the region. And they were able to identify two rivers that drained out of the Rocky Mountains that served as the beginning and the end point of a difficult, but not intraversible, connection between the American Midwest and the Oregon Territory. They laid the groundwork for the Oregon Trail. The Oregon Trail has become synonymous with the American westward expansion between the 1840s and the 1860s. Over those two decades, more than 300,000 settlers and pioneers would make their way across the Great Plains and over the Rocky Mountains to settle in the areas of present-day Oregon, Washington, and Northern California. At first, the settlers were drawn by the promise of free land. Later, when gold was discovered in the region, many were drawn by the promise of vast wealth for the taking. Still later, large groups of Mormons fleeing religious persecution would also use the trail. The journey along the Oregon Trail was harrowing and dangerous and tens of thousands died making the 2,000 mile trek. And the Oregon Trail was such a significant part of American history and such an important symbol of the American pioneering spirit that in 1971, three Minnesotan teachers decided it would be a perfect subject for a video game. In 1971, Don Rauch, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger were all students at Carleton College in rural Minnesota, and the three rented an apartment together in their senior year. As part of his student teaching assignment, Rauch was assigned to teach a group of 8th graders about the American westward expansion of the mid-1800s. Wanting to make the lesson interesting and engaging, Rauch experimented with board and card games, and he and Dillenberger began designing an Oregon Trail card game. Meanwhile, Bill Heineman had become fascinated with computers after he took a five-week course in computer programming and became a lab assistant in the college's computer lab. As he watched students using the university's massive computer to help with complex calculations, he began to wonder if the computer's power couldn't also allow it to interact with humans through written language. When Heineman came home one night and saw Dillenberger and Rowich playing the prototype Oregon Trail game, he realized he had found the subject of his computer program. He would make a game. The trio agreed to create a computer game for Rauch's lesson. The basic idea was that students would take on the role of pioneers making the trek along the Oregon Trail. They would have a group of pioneers and a set number of supplies and encounter random events along the trek. The three were very excited about the prospect. And then, Rawich's teacher moved the due date for his project up by three weeks. Instead of a month, the trio had a week to program the entire thing. Working feverishly, Rawich designed the entire game while Heinemann and Dillenberger, who also knew some rudimentary computer programming, coded the entire thing. And by the end of the week, it was done. And it was a hit. The first version of the Oregon Trail was played out entirely via teletype. That is, there was no screen. Instead, all the text of the game was typed out by a printer, and players would type in commands in response via a keyboard. In 1974, the Minnesota Educational Computer Consortium produced the game for sale to schools. And as computers became more ubiquitous, it was republished for more and more platforms. 
Versions of the Oregon Trail have been published for everything from the Apple II and Commodore 64 personal computers to the Nintendo Wii and DS and the Apple iPhone. To date, over 65 million copies have been sold, and many gamers who were first introduced to it in school still have a warm place in their heart for it, even though it didn't like them very much. The game was brutal, and everyone who has ever played it has watched countless settlers washed away while performing dangerous river crossings, freezing to death in blizzards, and most famously, dying of dysentery. Okay, so that's the trail part. But what about the blazing part? Well, to understand where that comes in, you should understand that the Oregon Trail is not just one trail. From the time of Lewis and Clark's expedition through the long years of the Oregon Trail's use, many explorers and traders and fur trappers and pioneers tried to find better routes. Many side trails and branches and shortcuts were discovered. And the Oregon Trail wasn't the only western trail in the United States. And if you were a pioneer who needed to follow the trail, and you couldn't hire a guide, how could you keep up with all that? Heck, if you were a guide, how could you keep up with all of that? Well, that's where the trailblazing comes in. Trailblazing is the practice of marking a trail so that other people can follow along behind you. In the American West, explorers would hack bark off the trees with hatchets to mark safe trails. And they would leave other signs as well, warning about particular hazards. And in the 1800s, the practice was nicknamed trailblazing. But the practice of marking trails and roads and paths across the untamed countryside was neither new at the time nor unique to American pioneers. Various peoples and nations throughout history have developed different methods of marking trails. For example, some Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest and in the northeastern United States engaged in a practice of making trail trees. See, trees do not grow like people. Instead, they grow from the tips of their branches. And they always grow toward the sky, seeking the sun. So if you were to bend a tree at an odd angle and hold it there while it grew, it would bend up toward the sky, but it would retain the strange bend. Native Americans would bend, but not break, trees at odd angles, tie them down or weigh them down with rocks, and leave them to grow with the odd bend. And those strangely shaped trees mark safe trails through the wilderness. But not every wilderness has trees. In Scandinavia, in the Scottish Highlands, and in the American deserts in the northern reaches, as well as many other places across the globe, Trails were often marked with carefully stacked piles of rocks. And they still are. We should note that trailblazing is still a very common practice. Hikers and bicyclists today use paint to mark their trail. But the practice is the same. And in treeless highlands, hikers will raise stacks of rocks. While these piles of rocks could take various forms, the most common throughout history was just a simple pile or stack. And that pile of rocks is commonly called a cairn. The word cairn comes from the Scottish Gaelic word carn, 
And of all the European nations, Scotland has the strongest and most ancient cairn raising tradition. Seriously, Scotland is just piled with cairns. See, apart from raising cairns as trail markers, many civilizations have been using cairns for various reasons since the Bronze Age. Cairns were used as an easy way to bury the dead in rocky lands where graves could not be dug. They were used to mark sacred or holy sites, and they were raised as monuments to commemorate various accomplishments. And the Scots? They did all those things, and more. One of the most interesting cairn traditions is exemplified by the Scottish blessing, Curig Miklach Erdo Cairn, which means, I will add a stone to your pile. See, in Scotland, it's traditional to build cairns at the top of summits or deep in the heart of rough valleys. And when people make a difficult journey to the cairn, they carry a rock with them to add to the cairn that is already there. It's sort of a way of saying Kilroy was here. With rocks. Cairns are also associated with Hermes, the Greek god of, well, of lots of things. He was the god of magic and oratory, he was a messenger and a trickster, he was an inventor and an athlete, and he even helped get souls to the divine hereafter. But for the purposes of this story, Hermes was the god of travel. However, the reason Cairns were associated with Hermes actually had nothing to do with trailblazing. Instead, it was because Hermes was an excellent lawyer who managed to avoid charges of first-degree gigicide. Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, was pretty famous for sleeping around, and his wife Hera was pretty famous for being very angry about that. One day Zeus was amorously involved with a nymph named Io, when Hera suddenly came wandering by. Thinking quickly, Zeus turned Io into a beautiful white cow to disguise her. And we're not even going to think about what his explanation was going to be for what he was doing with the cow. Fortunately, we don't have to. Because Hera was pretty smart, and immediately realized that the cow was really one of Zeus's disguised lovers. But instead of calling Zeus out on it, she complimented the beautiful cow, and demanded that Zeus give it to her as a gift and Hera imprisoned the cow in a cave under the guard of her favorite servant, Argos Panoptes, who just happened to be a giant with a hundred eyes covering his body. Zeus, meanwhile, asked Hermes if he could rescue his girlfriend, the cow, from Argos, and Hermes agreed. He realized it would be very difficult to sneak past someone with a hundred eyes pointed in every direction and so he lulled the giant to sleep with a song and then stabbed him to death. Hera was furious. Pausing only briefly to put the hundred eyes of Argos on the tail of her favorite bird, the peacock. Yes, that's why peacock tails look like that, in case you were wondering. Pausing only to bedazzle her pet bird with her former servant's eyes. She captured Hermes and put him on trial for the murder of Argos with all the other gods as jurors. Each juror was given a pebble to toss at either Hermes or Hera to render their verdict. Hermes, being the god of oratory, made such an amazing legal argument that he was covered in a mountain of pebbles. 
And that is why, at crossroads in ancient Greece, Cairns were raised in honor of Hermes, the god of safe travel. But apart from great explorers and travelers, there is another group of people renowned for leaving signs of their passage behind so others can follow in their footsteps. A much more humble group of people, and a much maligned group of people. And their story, the story of the American hobos, will bring us back to where we started, in America, in the mid-1800s. As the great westward expansion and migration started in earnest, America, and much of the western world, was going through the Industrial Revolution. And that had two consequences. First, machines were starting to replace human labor on factories and on farms. And second, the railroad industry was booming in its rush to connect the east and west coasts of the United States. In the middle of these changes, America went through a devastating civil war known as the American Civil War. And when the Civil War was over, soldiers returning home in the industrial north found that there was simply no work on the farms and in the factories, assuming the farms and factories had survived the war. Those soldiers, along with other impoverished farmers and laborers displaced by the war or the Industrial Revolution, gathered up whatever tools they had and set out in search of work. And the easiest way to find work was to hop aboard a railroad car ride the train as far as it would take you, and then get a job at the town at the end of the line. Often these jobs entailed laying more railroad tracks. But as industrialization was spreading west, there was lots of other work to be had at the end of the line as well. Work in mills, mines, work digging tunnels, even work digging sewers. And when work dried up in those towns, the itinerant laborers stowed away on another train and moved on. These were the first American hobos, and although we now associate the word hobo with tramps and bums and vagabonds, they were actually nothing more than displaced migrant workers, and many were former soldiers. At first, the railroad ignored the stowaway migrant workers. After all, they ended up hiring many of them, and the ones they didn't hire worked at factories and mines and mills that ended up using the railroads. So economically, the hobos were good for everyone. But then, in the 1870s, the American economy went into a massive tailspin. We talked about that in our episode about the land shark. Suddenly, a lot of people were unemployed and desperate, and work had dried up, and then the railroad stopped looking so kindly on the stowaways. So did the towns they flooded into en masse. Many decried the masses of unemployed vagabonds. Unable to find work, they resorted to scavenging and asking for charity. They set up massive camps and rail yards and droves and banded together. Town officials and journalists decried them as tramps. Some even advised people to offer them tainted food or leave out poisoned food so as to rid themselves of the tramp problem. In response, the hobos organized a community known as the Tourists' Union. The group would travel around, holding conventions and rallies for hobos and the Union enacted a Hobo Code of Ethics designed to improve the image of the hobo in the eyes of the various communities across the nation. But the hobo image was forever ruined in the eyes of most Americans. And gradually hobos became an insular, secretive subculture of wandering homeless free spirits. Among the features of the hobo subculture were hobo signs. 
Whenever a hobo entered a new community, if he discovered a place where someone could get a hot meal from a stranger, or a doctor that would help out a sick individual for free, or if he discovered work was available, he would make a little mark that other hobos would recognize. Likewise, if the hobo was chased by an angry dog or harassed by police officers or scammed by dishonest persons, he could leave marks warning other hobos of the hazards. And in that respect, hobos were just another group of traveling pioneers looking for a better life, following a trail left behind from their antecedents and just trying to avoid dying of dysentery. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Mm-hmm.